Welcome to Yellow Iron Black Smoke, your podcast for engaging conversation on construction equipment economics and management. I'm Michael Kelly, your host. Mike, how are you? I'm very well indeed. Thanks, Michael. Another beautiful day in in Southern Florida, while you guys up in the frozen north must be struggling, right? Well, it's been some beautiful weather up here. We uh, actually were able to take off our long sleeves for a short time last week, so that was nice. And uh, I also got to spend a little bit of time in Salt Lake City, and I went skiing with my wife. So that was super. that was a lot of fun. Super, super, super. All right. So last time we got on some side tracks. And we led our listeners through a long conversation without ever even talking about chapters 14 and 15. So I'm going to I'm going to do my best to keep us on track this time, but not so, so badly that I don't start asking you some questions that have come up as I've been talking to some customers. So I hope that we can do both be on track and off track at the same time. See if we can ride two tracks at once. Okay, let's do that. It's the it's the off track stuff, which is sort of exciting and interesting. The on track stuff. Is, uh, is important and it's where we need to be. But uh, yes, let's wonder wherever the, our thoughts take, your thoughts take us. Yeah, exactly. So we've been through a good chunk of the book through these podcasts. And mm. now we're looking at the chapters 14 and 15, which are specifically about age and utilization. And I'm curious to before we really dive into that you know how many chapters are there in the book how far are we are we um how do you how do you see our progress so far if we're if we're at chapter 14 now well we've progressed very very well indeed michael because we've uh, the book comes in 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 six parts we've we've done a podcast on uh, on on part 1 on on organization that's chapters 1 and 2 and and really the gist there is that if you're going to get this right You've got to build on a solid, solid uh, organization. Uh, part two of the book is Know Your Costs. And that's chapters three, four, five, six, and seven. And we've chatted about that at, uh, at great length. And one can't overestimate the importance of knowing your costs, or you can't overstate the importance of knowing your costs. And really for two reasons. The first one is you have to know your costs so that you can plan and manage and budget your fleet operations. But increasingly, as I talk to folk and as I talk to customers and those sorts of people, the importance of knowing your cost for estimating can't be overemphasized because, you know, can you produce a reliable estimate if you know the cost of asphalt with the same degree of confidence and accuracy as you know the cost of a wheel loader? All right. And After all, your equipment are resources that are used in the production of work, and estimating is the process of finding out what the resources you're going to use are going to cost. And so you have to know the cost of equipment as as a resource that you use. Would you estimate a job if you knew the cost of labor with the same accuracy and degree of confidence as you know the cost of equipment. Right? You mean it's not okay to know whether we're going to pay a guy $50 an hour or $100 an hour or somewhere in between? Somewhere in between. Okay. And especially if a lot of his wage is a fixed cost and some of his wage is a variable cost, and we pay him a monthly uh, salary or an hourly, hourly wage. Yeah. Okay. Can we pay him a combination of monthly and hourly? <laughs> well, How much does labor depreciate? 
Uh, we've got to get it right for equipment first, right? And so we have project labor agreements. Do we have project equipment cost agreements? Okay. Mm-hmm. And so that's really what part two of the book is all about. Know your costs. Too many folks think it's all about managing your fleet. But know your costs is all about providing fleet expertise as an input to estimating confidence and accuracy. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, Part three of the book, fleet average age, the optimum ownership period, the sweet spot, the fact that we should manage the age of our fleet so that we we run about the sweet spot so that we avoid this situation where the next cost, where the next hour the machine works costs us uh, more than the average cost of all the hours worked life to date, okay? And so that is part three of the book on fleet average age and the churn charts and CapEx planning and all that good stuff that we did there. Then part four of the book focuses on utilization. And we looked specifically at the relationship between utilization and hourly owning cost. Okay. Mm -hmm. And again, one that came up last week is that we have a crew placing asphalt. That crew will never hit its budget if it doesn't hit the budgeted quantity of asphalt in the shift. Right. We have a machine working. That machine will never hit its budget, hourly owning and operating cost, if it doesn't work the budgeted number of hours for that day. And so in exactly the same way as you're not going to hit your job cost budgets if you don't produce the production, your machines are not going to hit their owning and operating cost budget if they don't hit their hourly utilizations that were built into that budgeting process, okay? And that was utilization. We said utilization was this really cool lead indicator for the recovery of fixed costs. Yep. Okay? And now we are talking about section five of the book where we're going to talk about reliability and how important reliability is in this, uh, in this, in this, in this whole question. We're we going to chat about and build, try to build a case for reliability as a lead indicator for operating cost because every down event is a cost event. It's a cost event for the machine, and every down event is also a cost event for the job on which that machine is supposed to be working because every down event produces a whole bundle of collateral impacts. And sometimes those collateral impacts, such as if your dewatering pump goes down and your pipeline operation comes to an end, sometimes those collateral impacts can well exceed the cost of the hose that you had to replace to because it, it was the cause of that down event. All right. 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 Yeah, uh, that's for sure. You know, it's funny. Every time you and I have talked, it feels like reliability comes up. In fact, I remember one time you said to a group of us that reliability is the granddaddy of all metrics. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. I think I, I think I'm quoting you right there. How did you come to have such a focus on reliability? Well, I think we've spoken about, and certainly you and I have spoken about the fact that my kind of background and my thinking on the subject comes from 
field operations. My my work experience and my construction experience is building stuff, not uh, not running equipment fleets. And so I used to get really wound around the axle when the machines broke down because the key impact of a down event in my world was and remains on operations. This dewatering pump that goes down and freezes the whole of the of the trenching or pipeline operation, the paver that goes down and freezes the whole of the paving operation, the loader that goes down and freezes the whole of the load haul and dump operation. And it's these collateral impacts, which was the principal reason uh, why I came up with reliability as the granddaddy of uh, performance indicators. If you look at it from an equipment management point of view and from a maintenance management point of view, isn't reliability the objective of the maintenance enterprise? Don't we do maintenance because we want to improve reliability? Or don't we do maintenance because we want no red events, no down events? All right. Mm -hmm. And so is there a better metric that measures the effectiveness of your maintenance enterprise? Because let's imagine we had a 100% effective maintenance enterprise. We would have zero on-shift down events, all right? And we hope the airlines are kind of there, right? Mm -hmm. And then the third reason why I think reliability is really important, and this leads into part six of the book where I talk about being proactive to your cost and managing your cost instead of being reactive to what's happening to you, is that if you measure reliability, if you manage reliability, it's a you will be managing operating cost because every down event is a cost event for the machine in exactly the same way as every down event is a cost event for the job site. So those are three solid good reasons, Michael, for why I think reliability <laughs> is the granddaddy of them all, all right? Right. Um, yeah. One of my jobs is to go around and prove the words that you've said in bigger classes against all of the, you know, the various customers that I run into. And the only pushback I've ever gotten on that is people saying, well, wait a minute, isn't age the leading indicator of reliability? Yeah, good point. Good point, because... Machines do suffer from wear out failure. And if they suffer significantly from wear out failure, then they will, then it will become increasingly expensive and difficult to maintain high levels of reliability. Mm -hmm. And that is why, while reliability might be the granddaddy, age and, of course, utilization are close behind. As, uh, as key metrics. And in my world, the three key lead indicators of effective performance in managing the fleet is reliability for oper- as a key indicator, lead indicator for operating costs, utilization as a key lead indicator for owning cost recovery, and then age as sort of the catch-all because if you, if you let age get out of hand, then you're going to have very sincere problems with regards to the cost of maintaining the reliability because the machine would have experienced the wear out failures and you're going to have real problems getting utilization because the machine would have experienced so much downtime. 
So with this reliability, and and you talk about it being the, the primary the, the primary end goal of the maintenance operation, what kind of maintenance needs to happen when you say maintenance what what are you talking about when you call when you say maintenance i've, I've had some I, here, here's why i ask i had a company come to me and say yeah we maintain things we run them until they break and then we fix them and i and i thought well that doesn't sound like maintenance to me yeah yeah in my world and the definitions i use a maintenance event a maintenance action is an action you take before failure in order to prevent failure, okay? A repair event is, or a repair action, is an action you take after breakdown, after failure, in order to return the machine to a working status, okay? And so your maintenance events come in two, in two types. The first maintenance event is the preventive maintenance event, where a clock, if you wish, tells you to go out there, change the oil, change the filters, do something to the machine. Mm-hmm. So the clock, a clock or a usage meter drives a preventive maintenance event. Okay. Mm-hmm. And we call, we've called those green events. All right. Mm-hmm. And in many ways, one can think about a preventive, ma- preventive maintenance action as an investment. Okay. There's another kind of maintenance action, and I've called that a condition-based maintenance action. And that's when something you've observed or something you've measured drives the event. In other words, you've observed a leaking hose. You've observed a vibration. You've seen a crack. And you go out and fix it before it breaks. And you base your preemptive repair before failure action on some intelligence, on some knowledge of the condition of the machine. Somebody sees a leak, somebody sees a hose that's loose, uh, somebody sees a belt that's not what it, how it should be, they report it, it gets plugged, it gets done, and it gets fixed before the machine breaks down. So if a clock or a usage meter tells you to go to a preventive maintenance action, your eyes and ears, and your intelligence and your information tells you to go do a condition-based event. We've called those orange events. Now, when it comes to a repair action, guess who tells you to come fix me? The machine, right? Right. The machine says, I've just broken down. You have but no option but to come and fix me. And I'll tell you what, it's three o'clock on a Friday afternoon. It happens to be snowing, and I'm down the bottom of the quarry. So how about pack your stuff and drive down to the bottom of the quarry on a Friday afternoon to come fix me? Whereas if somebody had used their eyes and ears and noticed that leaky pipe, they could have taken that machine out and fixed it somewhere convenient at a convenient time, all right? Because now not only have they got to go there and repair the machine, they've got to fix the oil spill, they've got to do this, they've got to do that, they've got to do the other. So a repair action you hand the initiative over to the machine, okay? A maintenance action, you retain the initiative. You say when and where and how and what. For a, for a preventive maintenance action, the what is your preventive maintenance checklist. When is when the usage meter tells you. 
For a condition-based maintenance action, the what is what you've noticed, what you've identified, and the when is whenever it's convenient to you in the relatively short term. For a repair action, you've lost the initiative. Mm-hmm. What? Fix me. When? Right now. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I was with a I was with a customer who uh, was talking about their previous week, and I I asked them as we were going through some of their data. I said, "Well, this is interesting. Uh, what happened here? Because there was a red event, but there was time card data from the previous Thursday, and then also time card data on that red event for the the following Monday and Tuesday." And I said, "Well, that's interesting." I said, "What happened here?" They said, "Oh, well." In the middle of this event that we were looking up on the screen, they said the other machine broke, so we pulled. We had to pull off of this and go 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 repair the other machine because it was more important. So this this was a, a red event that was interrupted by a, another red event. Talk yep. about losing the initiative in that particular case. And of course, this happens in all companies. I mean, it's not like you you always will occasionally have that happen. Um, but it was an interesting uh, when you say losing the initiative. It's like you really lost the initiative there. Even on a on a what you thought was an important red event, you lost initiative by going to an even more important more red important event. event. Yeah, and of course, there was a big study done uh, several years back, and but I have no reason to believe it isn't true. Looking at the frequency of uh, component failures, and um, they said which which component is most likely to fail. Well, the component which is most likely to fail to cause a red event is the component that last caused a red event. Mm-hmm. Okay. And interpret that statement by saying that we seldom fix things correctly the first time around. Sure. Why? Because we're in a rush. Because it's difficult to fix it at the bottom of a quarry, quarry at 3 o'clock on Friday afternoon in the snow. Yeah, and you don't want to be there and you want to get away from it as quickly as possible. You want to restore production as quickly as possible. And so a repair event, it, it's, it's a seldom is it a repair. Most frequently it's a fix. All right. So you get there, you haven't got probably haven't got all the, the materials you need, all the parts you need. You probably are not an expert on that particular component. You right. certainly are under time pressure, and you're going to get the wheels turning as quickly as possible. You are actually not going to repair the machine. You're going to fix it. And in the fullness, and, and you will lay the seeds or plant the seeds for the next red event on the same machine, the same component in many, so, many cases. So it, it's, this is uh, interesting. It's, it's, it's all about preventing these red events. And yeah. Recently, I was in a in a classroom setting. I was talking about red events and orange events and green events, and I talked about preventive maintenance with the green events. And one of the more astute students said, "It sounds like that the orange events are predicting failure." And and I thought that was interesting. The green events are preventing. The orange events are predicting and preventing. They're saying, "Hey, this might be going bad." Well, yes, and we don't call them green, orange, and red events for no reason. You look at a traffic light. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> the green light says, do what you need to do, you know, keep going with your journey. The orange light says, if you don't take care, this is going to go red in the next little while. 
And so, yes, absolutely, if you don't do anything about a, a condition which has drawn your attention, then the machine will draw your attention. Right. Okay. If you don't pay attention to your intelligence, the machine will beat you over the head and tell you to come do something about it. Mm-hmm. But before we go off the subject, let's let's stick to this business of a repair. To <laughs> me, to me, an on-shift repair is something that you should absolute an on-shift fix is something that you should absolutely minimize. If possible, if a machine has gone down, replace it with another one. Take the down machine off shift because once it's gone off shift, it's no longer on the critical path, right? Mm -hmm. Once it's gone off shift, you can get the right stuff, get the right people and actually repair the failure. I'm going to suggest, and I've never said this before, that very few repairs take place on shift. A lot of fixes take place on shift. And if oh, interesting. Through, so, so you're 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 differentiating between a repair and a fix. A repair being something that doesn't need to be repaired again. Yes. Yes. Something where you sit back and you look at it and you do your root cause analysis and you find out why and you fix the root cause. And in fact, the machine, when you put it back to work, the machine is a little better than it was just before the repair, Mm -hmm. before the down event. Mm -hmm. Whereas a fix, the machine will be as it was before the down event or maybe a little bit less. Yeah, exactly. Duct tape and shoestring. Duct tape and shoestring and... um, Hey, I'll tell you what, it's three o'clock on a Friday afternoon. It's snowing. It's at the bottom of the quarry. I'm going to use a little bit of duct tape. I'm going to get this machine running for the next hour and a half so that it can finish the shift. And then I'll tell you what, we'll come fix it on Monday morning. Yeah. What happens on Monday morning? Another red event. And you don't fix the machine that you half fixed on Friday afternoon. Okay. Mm-hmm. Right. And so, yes, I think this afternoon uh, we've we've drawn a a critical distinction that I've never really articulated before, and that is between a fix and a repair. Yeah. The the hardest one, maybe it's because these are the ones that get talked about a lot, but it feels like that it's very difficult to to repair specialty equipment. So if you you have a a large excavation contractor, they they have a pile of Caterpillar 320s or, you know, 330s right and and not only that the you know the cat dealer the nearby cat dealer has a, a bunch that they can rent from right they can they can they can get a if it's the main line digger on a pipe job or whether they're doing a big excavation and uh load and haul trucks or whatever it is they can get a new excavator there mm-hmm. fairly quickly mm-hmm. they might they, they likely have one themselves and if they don't they can rent one but mm-hmm. these specialty pieces of equipment uh, things like large cranes or directional boring machines or the you know something that is is outside of the standard work or at least standard work for them or maybe in their area it's difficult to replace that and so when those pieces go down it's on shift work almost by definition which is why which is why for those key units that determine the pace of production and that cannot be 
or you know set aside or taken out of the production chain for those key units their preventive and condition based maintenance must be phenomenal all right bit of a background story at one stage in along an illustrious career i was involved in building a railroad up in the central african country called malawi we had one tie tamper there wasn't another tie tamper within 800 miles uh, when and, you, and this wasn't like 800 miles of nicely paved roads that, you know, with multiple ways to get there. Right? Yeah, right. And so if that tie tamper went down, we stood the whole job. Okay. And so the preventive and condition-based maintenance on that tie tamper was phenomenal. Because when we, when we came off over the weekend, there were two or three mechanics that buzzed around the thing the whole of Saturday and the whole of Sunday, all right? Mm -hmm. And when it was good to go on Monday, it went from 6 a.m. Monday morning till 6 p.m. Friday evening. And I don't think we ever had an on-shift down event for that tie tamper over a three-year period, all right? Wow. Did we spend a lot of time fixing it, repairing it, maintaining it? Absolutely. All right. right. We spent a lot of time maintaining it, but we did spend very little, if any, time repairing it because we experienced all but no on-shift failures because we just couldn't afford them. Well, let's um, let's look at the airplanes that stand outside the gates at the airports, right? Sure. Sure. Yeah. 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 It's difficult. It's difficult to recover from an on-shift failure when you're thirty thousand feet in the air. Yep. Yep especially if it's a mission-critical component, right? Yeah, a, a wing, say. <laughs> or an engine. But let's not go there. That's a bit depressing, right? <laughs> the, um, so, so take that tie temper, for example. Um, and, of course, uh, you know, this was out in the, uh, you know, 800 miles from, the, from a, a backup machine. So it wasn't like you necessarily had real sophisticated tools to you know to track and organize but i'm curious to dig into what your orange events looked like how did you how did you i diagnose them did you track them were they were they in the heads of the mechanics what was the you know what was the process that you went through you as a project manager to make sure that that thing didn't go down between 6 a.m monday and 6 p.m friday what did those orange events look like well of course, if you call it condition-based maintenance, then the first thing you need to have is the eyes and ears and hands that will assess its condition on an ongoing basis. So the machine was very thoroughly inspected at the end of every shift, okay? Is there anything here that looks like it's not gonna make the next shift? The machine was very thoroughly inspected at the end of every week. Is there anything here that looks like it's not going to make the next week? Okay. And so, and then not only do you need the eyes and ears to assess the condition of the machine, you need the resources to do something about the condition you've assessed. So it's very unlikely that if there's a, 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 a hose that's chafing somewhere on the on the tie tamper on Friday afternoon, that over the weekend, the mechanics are gonna work on the superintendent's pickup and not the tie tamper, 
Okay. Right. Because the tie tamper is mission critical and the superintendent's pickup as much as he may think otherwise is not. Okay? Right. And so inspect it, allocate your resources to the mission critical equipment and make sure that the mission critical equipment is run. Okay. How often do we see mission critical machines going down when machines that are not necessarily mission critical are sucking maintenance, uh, you know, repair and maintenance technician time out of the system? All right. Right. Um, because you are constantly fighting fires all over the place. So, uh, to answer your question specifically, our system was very, very comprehensive inspections and no compromises when it came to uh, maintaining the mission-critical equipment. This is definitely a side rail now, which is fine uh, because we're talking about building a railroad. So um, you were 800 miles away from the nearest tide temper. That means you were a long ways from what what at the time would be called civilization. If they found something that was wrong on Friday at 7 p.m., how in the world did they – make that orange event ready to work on? How did they get the stuff that they needed to in order to say, in order to replace the hose, in order to get the new filter, all of that? I mean, this was this is Malawi. Yeah, yeah. Well, as a matter of interest, uh, there was an occasion when there was not a single shop in the country that could sell you a box of matches. Uh, so let's not talk about hoses and filters. Let's talk about yeah. Um No, Michael, to be serious, you know that that's where you are, okay? And you know that these are the kinds of things you're going to experience. So you have on site parts that you expect to have, and you maintain a, a store of parts, and you maintain the, the infrastructure that you need to, to support the equipment wherever it, it may go, all right? Mm-hmm. And so... You spend a lot of time, and I think this is a subject we could chat about at some stage. You spend a lot of time making sure that you're ready and prepared for these orange events, okay? And, of course, if you stay in the green and orange zone and you retain the initiative, then your preparatory work is effective. But if you nudge over into the red event world and you lose the initiative, then who knows whether you're prepared or not for an event where you've lost the initiative. Right. You can retain the initiative. You can retain the initiative not only insofar as doing the work, but you can retain the initiative insofar as preparing to do the work. Right. I suppose that's true because if they they identified – at 7 p.m. on a on a on a Friday Malawan evening, that something was likely to fail the next week, and they were not ready to to repair that. That didn't mean that it had failed, Mm-mm. and so now they might be able to make that ready and repair it Monday evening. Yep, and there would uh, there would be a quick radio message in our case before. That was how we communicated. There would be a quick radio message uh, from Malawi down to South Africa. And sometime on Saturday evening, uh, an airplane would take off with the necessary parts so that we could have it. 
to fit on Monday evening, all right? Mm -hmm. Because if you retain the initiative, then let's say it again, because again, this is something I've never said before, all right? We're, we're breaking new ground this afternoon, and that is if you retain the initiative insofar as the performance of the work is concerned, you also retain the initiative insofar as the planning and preparation for the performance of that work is concerned. Yes, yes. I think that's so critical. That That is so critical. I, I've been really thinking about the book. It's an old book, first handed to me by uh, Vice President of Operations for a Big Excavation Company, yeah, The Goal by Eli Goldratt. Mm-hmm. And and the theory of constraints, and he he wrote a series of books after that about the theory of constraints, and that you know every every system has one bottleneck, roughly speaking, mm-hmm. and the so often that those red events they just completely fill up whatever the bottleneck happens to be, okay. and what whether it's like right now getting parts is a really difficult there's so much supply chain disruption mm-hmm. you know parts that are being stolen out of the tr- the train yards in los angeles parts mm-hmm. that are still stuck on ships offshore like all of that disruption that has been happening in the last year you know, especially the last six months and or, or in some companies it's that they simply can't find good work good qualified mechanics right there's many different things that could be the constraint Right, but the constraints become painfully obvious when all you have is the red event, because, like you said just now, that you haven't retained the initiative. You can't plan for that red event. You've lost initiative, and so it's you're going to do it as fast as your constraint or your bottleneck is going to allow. Mm-hmm. And if that's mm-hmm. qualified in mechanics, that means you are going to work as fast as your qualified mechanics have time. And that might mean that your mechanics are working 12-hour days, right, in order to get that done, where if you've retained the initiative, you can plan for that work. You can make it so that even the mechanics aren't wasting time trying to call around, get the parts, aren't waiting for the parts runner to come out to the job, et cetera, et cetera. I would say I would – I would change the word even the mechanics to especially the mechanics. Okay. Yeah, yep. And um, and yes, but let's just make sure that our listeners are, are kind of following because we, we've discussed this and we, we've kind of used the words interchangeably, red events and reliability, okay? Sure. Because the way I define it in the book and in, and in my world and the way we de- you and I define it, is that reliability is just the frequency of red events. Reliability is how many red events do you have per thousand hours life to date on the machine? Okay. So if I have if I have a lot of red events, if the frequency is high, maybe I have 40 red events. I saw this actual data, four zero red events per thousand hours life to date. That is an unreliable machine. Completely unacceptably unreliable machine all right and, and if you have if you have like 0.02 red events per thousand hours life to date right yep. so that would be 0.02 would be one event every 40,000 hours i'm sure i'm doing my math wrong uh, someone will email us afterwards and say michael your math stinks um the that that then you have a very reliable machine so, machine. It's so reliability, reliability frequency of red events 
frequency of red events, and we measure the reliability, or in the, the way I've done it in the book, is by just saying how many red events per thousand hours does a particular machine or a particular group of machines uh, experience life to date? Okay. Right. Because this whole science of measuring and recording rare events is a very interesting science to uh, to study. All right. And many folk will talk about reliability in terms of MTBF, mean time between failures. I prefer frequency rather than mean time between failure. Folk tend to, when you talk to somebody about mean time, it sounds like you're a mathematician. Uh, or you're, or you're, you're, you're angry and you're being mean. Being mean. Whereas if you just talk about how many red events per thousand hours, you can kind of conceptualize that, which is exactly what you, what you did a couple of minutes ago. All right. These are a lot of red events per thousand hours. Wow. All right. And you can put them into context. Whereas meantime between failures is, is a much more difficult thing to, um, to conceptualize. Mm-hmm. And also, while, we, on the, while I'm on this kind of theme, I'd like to make sure that our listeners are up to speed with the difference between availability and reliability. Okay. Whereas availability is the amount of downtime a machine experiences per operating hour. So if a machine mm-hmm. is, um, is down four hours in a 40-hour week, it's down 10% of its time, 90% availability. So availability measures the amount of downtime. And of course, your maintenance enterprise should be designed to and set up to reduce downtime. And so availability measures the effectiveness of your maintenance enterprise in reducing on-shift downtime. And of course, if a machine goes down on shift and you can take it off shift and repair it properly, then that's not on shift downtime. Okay. So you can have very, very high availabilities for machines that you can take off shift. So if our time tamper didn't have to work Saturdays and Sundays, the time we spent working on that time tamper Saturdays and Sundays wasn't downtime. Sure. Right? We had 100% availability on the tie tamper, despite the fact we spent 20 hours a week working on it, right? Right, right. Those 20 hours were Saturday and Sunday. Mm-hmm. So availability measures the efficiency of your maintenance enterprise in reducing downtime. Reliability measures the effectiveness of your maintenance enterprise in eliminating downtime. Okay. And so you need a maintenance enterprise or you need strategies to set up your maintenance enterprise so that it can be both effective and your strategy for effective maintenance enterprise is maintenance. Reduce red events to an absolute minimum and also efficient. And your strategy for an efficient maintenance enterprise is fix it quickly Take it off shift, replace it. Yeah, and and that, that efficiency, that efficiency of the of the enterprise is really an interesting thing. Um, because so in order to be highly efficient and and respond to red events quickly, yes. it means that you more or less have to have people sitting around twiddling their thumbs, or you've got to go there and or you've got to have a lot of duct tape 
in a lot of places, and duct tape is going to work. That's right. Because because that is, what do they say? That's very efficient, but not very effective. Yeah. Yep. You got it back up and running very quickly on Friday afternoon, but it broke down again on Monday morning. Very efficient to get it up and running quickly, but not very effective because it broke down again on Monday morning. You know, it's interesting what you say about there's a there's a book called The Phoenix Project by Gene Kim and some others, and they're they're talking about how to respond to emergencies in that book. And what they what they said was that they put a graph in there basically that showed the relationship between how long someone has to wait for you to respond to an emergency and how busy the first responders are. And Clearly, if you're if you have a a fire truck and all of the firemen are busy all the time responding to things, that means that the the next subsequent car accident or or house fire will it'll take longer for those people to respond on average when you look at the, the year. Mm-hmm. And if you have a a fire department that where they relatively not busy they're you know they're at their fire station they're doing their the workouts and they're they're maintaining the fire truck that kind of thing that they can respond very quickly to the emergency right and you have to balance that between the the whole the whole purpose of that exercise in this book the phoenix project was to balance that right to balance the Mm -hmm. amount of time that you uh that you you can afford to wait with Mm -hmm. the amount of resources you can throw at the problem Clearly, clearly, if if we have a bunch of highly trained mechanics sitting at the shop waiting for something to happen, we're spending a lot of money, right? And and yet we can respond to things very very quickly then. And so, if that was your only choices, right, then you would just say, oh, we'll either have a lot of mechanics or we have to wait when red events happen. But that's where I I like the the discussion of the effectiveness instead instead of just the efficiency because it's like you said that now, then we can start talking about whether or not we repaired the the machine or whether we fixed the machine just to have it break again yep yep and also if we talk about the data and the metrics the data that you need to record downtime is very noisy because who who notified the mechanic uh, was it over lunchtime? Did he? Did you? Te- did you text him right away? What you know? Is it on shift? Is it off shift? And the data is mm-hmm. very, very noisy. And but with regards to reliability, the event occurred. It's a it's an integer thing. You either dis- the machine either went down and disrupted production, or it didn't. Right. right. And so it's an integer thing. And so really, strange as it might sound reliability, collecting data to do a frequency of red events calculation is much easier and much cleaner than collecting data to do an availability calculation, all right, Mm -hmm. because of the controversy about the duration of a down event, okay? But there's no controversy about whether that event happened or not. Right. And so we uh, we can simply code or flag a work order so that this is a red work order. This is an on-shift failure 
And you just count those on-shift failures and bingo, you've got your reliability metric, okay? No fuss, which is much simpler than all the emotional conversations one has about whether the machine was down or it wasn't down. Well, it was down, but you didn't need it because the operator was sick, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. All right, you can steer clear of all that, that kind of stuff when you make a clear distinction between availability and reliability. Not to say availability isn't important, because if the machine is not available, you're not going to get your utilization. Right. And it's the utilization we're looking for. Right? Yeah, exactly. We, we, it's, it's clearly the end result, but the reliability is easy to measure, and it's a lead indicator. Yep. If we have good reliability, we will also have good availability. Yep. Yep. Because the best down event is a down event. The shortest down event is the down event that doesn't occur. <laughs> exactly. Yep. Right. Yep. And so, yep. so we're 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 using it as a lead indicator. We're not saying that availability isn't important. No, not at all. But it, reliability, in my opinion, at least, is a better lead indicator of operating cost, because every down event is a cost event, either to the job site or to the machine, and in almost every case, to both. So once in a while, Mike, I get into a uh, scenario where I fall into the Wikipedia wormhole and I get sucked in. I, like I, I get closer and closer to the event horizon where I will never return. Um, and one of these times, I believe it was after a conversation with you, I stumbled across, well, it was because of the DuPont model, actually. That's where, that's where it started was the DuPont model on Wikipedia. Uh, but there was also, I, I remember reading and being fascinated by the Wikipedia article on the bathtub curve because I had heard you refer to the bathtub curve. It's referred to in the book and it is uh, kind of a generally, it looked like a generally well-known term when we talk about reliability. From your perspective and with equipment, construction equipment specifically, how does a bathtub curve pull into all of this? Just to... Mm -hmm. Just to, so that our reader or listeners don't have to suffer the same effect as me and end up on Wikipedia for three hours. <laughs> well, I hope they have the curiosity that causes them to go there. All right. The bathtub curve is a, one of those things which is probably because it's got a catchy name. It's fairly well understood and fairly widely used. And what it is, is it, it in the context of what we're talking about, is that it breaks reliability into three components, okay? And in the first component, the frequency of red events is high because the machine is very young. And what we're talking about there is manufacturing quality, right? And if you look at J.D. Power and Associates' measure of initial quality in, in cars, for instance, what they're measuring is how often does a car have to go back to the dealer in the first 20,000 miles? Okay. So in the good old days, this was very much more than a phenomenon than it is today, but there was manufacturing quality, which caused a high frequency when machines were young. Okay. But that initial quality decays as the machine beds down and kind of finds its, its norms. The third component of reliability, so if you wish, that's the, that's the tap-in of, uh, of the bathtub curve, all right? 
the second component of reliability is the constant down events which happen through the life of a machine. And yes, there will be down events happening with relatively constant frequency through the life of the machine. So initial quality, which goes down with the life of the machine, constant quality, constant reliability, which remains flat during the life of the machine. And then the real problem is the wear out reliability, which increases through the life of the machine. In other words, as the machine ages and it wears out, it's going to become less and less reliable. So the frequency of down events will grow as the machine ages. Mm-hmm. So the bathtub curve, if you wish, starts at the cap end, the, 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 far end, the young end, being pretty high because of a lack of initial quality. But that works its way through the system. Through the life, there's a constant component and then as the machine ages, there's a growing component, which, if you wish, is the foot end of the bathtub curve, all right? Sure. So, so if, I, if, if I have this right, we have the, at, the, at the tap end, there's, there's a high but, re, but decreasing level of failures as you're working through any kind of manufacturer defects. So it's, it's, it starts out high and goes down. Yep. Uh, fairly quickly, I would I would say, it. and yep. and f- from what talking to contractors, it does seem like that the manufacturing quality quality has gone up, maybe since that was invented or that that term was invented, because it feels like that some people are are experiencing that, but they seem to be relatively minor. Um, absolutely, I hear it's I hear it's an anecdote. It's minor, or you can uh, you can subcontract it back to the manufacturer or make it the manufacturer's risk or the manufacturer's cost, but. Really, as the user of a machine, the initial manufacturing quality down events are not a problem. It's a warranty issue. Right? Yeah. And then the constant ones, but the ones which we really fight with our maintenance enterprise are the wear out failures. And so if you want to imagine a, an arm wrestling issue, here is the machine are working progressively number of our number of hours and heading towards wear out failures, wear out down events. And here's our maintenance enterprise in the arm wrestling game, pushing the opposite way, trying to prevent those wear out failures. And so how much money, how much time, energy and effort do you spend preventing wear out failures? Gotcha. Massive question. Massive. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. well um we kind of have a visual in my head now with the bathtub one of the things that the people who are listening to this don't have are all the graphics that are in the book um but there are there there is an interesting graphic that you have in the book that i i find to be useful with all sorts of different audiences and that's the different the four quadrants can you could you paint us a picture I can try. I can try. The uh, This graphic is kind of, I've been a, a thing that I've rolled around in my head for many, many years. So let's, let's look at the four quadrants. And let's on the horizontal axis plot red events per thousand hours, reliability, and low, close to the origin, high, far away from the origin. Yeah. And on the vertical axis, the y-axis, let's plot repair parts and labor cost per hour with low close to the origin 
and high way up on the vertical axis, right? So close to the origin, you've got a quadrant where the machine is very reliable, close, mm-hmm. to, the, close to the origin on the horizontal axis, and very cheap, close to the origin on the vertical axis. Got well, it. in your dreams, reliable and cheap, okay? <laughs> or maybe when it's young, or maybe in a super perfect world, reliable right. and cheap. Let's now go out on the horizontal axis. Lack, not reliable, but cheap. Well, that's not where we want our key production units to be. Maybe if we are not reliable, but cheap, being in that quadrant is telling us we should invest some more money in prevention. All right. Because you get duct more tape is duct tape is really cheap, is what you're saying. Duct tape is really cheap, but it's going to happen again on Monday morning. Right. And you are then going to be in the quadrant which is low and far out on the horizontal axis. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now let's take the opposite one and say that we're going to keep this machine reliable. So reliability is good, close to the hor- to the origin on the horizontal axis, but way up far from the origin on the vertical axis. Expensive, but reliable. Mm -hmm. Replacing all your components every Monday morning is expensive, but reliable, right? And now you are perhaps, if you wish, gold plating the thing. And this is where we, we would love the airlines to be. And this is where the airlines are, right? Right. And, and probably closer to where you were with the tie tamper machine. Yes. This is where we were with the tie tamping machine. So this is the tie tampers quadrant. Because we spent forty, we spent uh, twenty hours a week on this tie tamper. Regardless, it had to be highly reliable, and really, the collateral cost, the consequential cost of it going down, was so high that in preventive condition-based and preventive maintenance, we could spend almost anything. So sure. we were up, we were up high on the y-axis, but close to the origin on the uh, on the x-axis. But now let's look at quadrant number four. We're way out on the horizontal axis and we're way up on the vertical axis. Not reliable and expensive. That's where we must not be. That's where we cannot be. Okay. And that is an indicator of the fact that you are, regardless of your of the amount of money you're spending, you can no longer manage those wear out failures, all right? And you can no longer return the machine back to acceptable levels of reliability, regardless of how much you spend on it. That's time to kind of part company with the machine, all right? Because it is not responding to the money that you're spending to buy back the reliability. If you lose reliability, but you can buy it back, and the machine is then again reliable, and then you'll lose it and you'll buy it back. You'll lose it and you'll buy it back. That's okay. But where you don't want to be is you lose it and you can't buy it back. Right. Okay. Now, what causes you to be unable to buy it back? In most instances, people think it's the age of the machine and the deterioration of the machine. But let's talk about the training of your mechanics. Let's talk about the quality of your operators. Let's talk about the fact that you may be buying non-OEM parts. 
Right. You may be doing the wrong thing, all right, and producing not non-quality fixes instead of repairs, right? right? Now you are using expensive duct tape. Right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So quadrant one, close to the origin, is where you want to be. Quadrant two, out on the horizontal axis, lots of duct tape. Quadrant three, up on the vertical axis, you are spending a lot of time because the collateral, co collateral costs of downtime are high. It's your tie tamper. Quadrant four, not reliable and very expensive. You're using very expensive duct tape or this duct taping operation is no longer working at all. Right. So so if we have a machine or a series of machines or maybe even a fleet that is trending towards being in that quadrant four, high cost, low reliability, then what do we do to diagnose the problem? Like, how do we know? I mean, we can start flogging the mechanics, right? That's that's mm -hmm. a that's, you know, sometimes what people say is like, well, the mechanics aren't doing their job right. It's like, well, this might not be a mechanic problem. What is the actual problem here? How do you go about determining where the where the root cause of that lies? Well, again, it's hands-on eyes and ears in the situation. And all that I can suggest is that do not go to fleet average age right away because it is very likely and entirely possible that the cause for being in quadrant four is somewhere else. And it's in training and it's in facilities and it's in resources and it's in operators and it's in operations and it's in application and it's in all those uh, kind of areas. All right. Uh, have we got time for a story? Got I think so. For we have plenty of time for a story. Bunch of, bunch of machines out in quadrant four. So to your point, I go there or I'm asked to go there to look around and see why we are up there in, in quadrants two and quadrants four. And what are we doing that's wrong? So I walk around the place, particularly the shop, and the shop was very little short of a pigsty, which was job one, to clean up the shop and provide the necessarily clean resources to do high quality work. But the particularly bad place in the shop was the hose bench. And if you ever, if I ever walk around a shop, the first place I go to is the hose bench, where we redo our hoses and make, mm -hmm. and make our own hoses or store the hoses we buy. The hose bench was the worst pigsty I've seen for many years. So I look at it and I say to the guy showing me around, I say, whose responsibility is this? Well, it's Pete's responsibility. Oh, first thing I say is, oh, I see we make our own hoses because now a lot of lights are going off in my mind with regards to this mm -hmm. lack of reliability because mm -hmm. how do you get dirt in a hydraulic system? Mm -hmm. Don't properly clean the hoses you make, right? Mm -hmm. So the lights are going off in my mind. So I say, who is responsible for this? Oh, he says, no, it's, it's Joe's responsible for this. I said, all right, where's Joe? Let's talk to Joe because I want to tell Joe that this is totally, completely unacceptable. Joe, where's Joe? Where's Joe? Anybody seen Joe? Oh, no, Joe quit six months ago. Okay. Joe was the only guy that we had trained to make our own hoses. 
So who makes hoses now? Oh no, well, we all do. Any of us been trained to make hoses? No. Any of us take ownership of this pigsty called the hose bench? No, not really. We come here, we make a hose or two, we go fit it to the machine. Well, all right, do we need to go further? Those high frequency of red events was not because of the machines. It was because we didn't have anybody properly trained to make hoses, to clean hoses, and to keep the guns out of the hydraulic systems. Right. right. And that is an example that I frequently think about, frequently talk about when I say, hey, know which quadrant you're in with regards to cost and reliability. And if you're in the high cost, low reliability quadrants, if you're in the low reliability quadrants, and particularly if you're in the high cost, low reliability quadrant, look at things like that. Because of course you're in the high cost, low reliability quadrant, not because of the cost of the hoses, but because of the cost of the cylinders, pumps, and motors that right. you're chewing up because of the guns that was in the damn hoses that were pro weren't properly cleaned because Joe quit six months ago and nobody's been trained on how to make hoses. All right. 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 So you're in high cost quadrant because of pumps, cylinders, and motors. You're in the low reliability quadrant because of hoses. All right. So that, yeah. And and when the cylinder has gone down, when the hose has has, you know, and you're needing to make a hose, and it's a red event, you've lost the initiative. If if the main line digger's done, and the the crew is standing, then nobody is going to care that the hose bench is a pigsty. They're and, gonna go there and make a hose as quickly as possible and fit it. And don't even take the time to clean it. Right. And and they're going to be congratulated on fixing it quickly. On their efficiency in fixing it quickly. Yep. But their effectiveness is going to be revealed in a week or two's time when the pump goes. Right. In that particular case, the, the fix was clean up the bench, get good training, get good procedures for everybody who has to use the bench. And guess what happened? The plots came back to the first quadrant. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. Because they had, a, they had a relatively young fleet and it wasn't, it obviously, if they had just immediately said, oh, our fleet's too old, let's go buy new, new pieces. Well, those new pieces would have experienced the same situation eventually. Or what they would most likely have done is beaten on the manufacturer and the dealer. Mm -hmm. Okay because these machines were not staying in the first quadrant, despite the fact that they were relatively young. Right, right. Interesting. So that being said, there is still a relationship between age and reliability. Yes. yes. The, ed, the, the, the tail end, the foot end of the bathtub curve. Yes. If maintenance effort remains constant, you will get deteriorating reliability with wear on. Now the question is, do our machines actually wear out? Okay. Now, if it's a relatively small machine, which is made out of relatively thin steel and comprises of one component, then it probably will wear out. But if it's a 100-ton mining truck, 
just half a dozen major components bolted to a strong, rigid frame, then as long as you keep up with your component replacement policies and your condition-based maintenance, you probably won't experience wear out failures, all right? With the exception that your major components, which you will replace on an ongoing basis, will probably not experience increasing frequency of down events. But what about your switches? And what about your gauges? And what about your wiring? And what about all the small things, all right? And so if you have a vibrating trench roller, you are going to experience wear out failure, all right? right? And, but if you have a 100-ton mining truck, uh, half a dozen, a dozen or so major components that you can replace on an ongoing basis, rigid frame which doesn't crack or deteriorate to any extent, you are probably there not going to be experiencing wear out failure in the major components in the frame because you're going to be managing those on a planned basis. Right. But take care with switches, hoses, wiring, gauges, and all those little things. A faulty gauge or a faulty a fault in the wiring can stop a 100-ton truck in exactly the same way as a conrod through the engine block can stop a 100-ton right. truck. Right. right. So I want to go back to something that's really been on my mind a lot. Uh, and and you mentioned it when we started talking about the the initiative, having the initiative. With orange events particularly, we have the initiative and and we can we can go out there and we can take charge of the work. And there's a whole there's a whole thing about making work ready. How do we apply that? How do we so so assume that we have a, a, a really robust system of the input, right? We have operators who are uh, reporting to us. We have a good se- series of inspections from the mechanics and from maybe the fuel guys. We maybe even have oil samples telling us, in, having giving us good information. And now we're starting to get telematics that we can actually trust from the OEMs that are that are reporting to us. You know, sensor-based information. We have we have a rich input of of orange-based. Uh, orange conditions, right? Things that may break. We're predicting well, right? Mm-hmm. And so now, now that we have this list of things that need done, mm-hmm. how do we go about making it ready to work? How do we think about that? Michael, there's um, there are a lot of folk in the Lean Construction Institute and a lot of folk in the Lean Construction world who've done a lot of research and measured the effectiveness of focusing on your make-ready tasks in construction operations, all right? And of course they say that unless you can plan the work, there's no way you can plan the make-ready tasks, all right? And unless you can plan and execute the make-ready tasks, there's no way you can execute the work, right? So you have this sort of circle between the work and the make-ready tasks. So job number one is you've got to be pretty good, very good at planning the work. So as you say, you've got to have your telematics, your 
condition assessment, your condition-based maintenance program, your inspection program, your operators talking to you all the time. I felt a vibration. Something wasn't good. I got onto this machine and I noticed oil in the belly pan. And you've got to have eyes, ears, and hands on. So you've got to have that information. So step one is the intelligence you need to properly plan the work. Then there's this whole culture that you need to believe in make ready. Because there are a lot of people who don't believe in make ready, all right? Hey. Ready, fire, aim, okay? Yeah. Yep. Or fire, aim, fire, fire, ready, whatever it is, as long as we mm -hmm. fire, it doesn't matter whether we've aimed or, or readied, all right? And so there are a lot of people who don't have the discipline and the mindset that believes in make ready, all right? And then the third thing that you need to run a properly managed make ready do, make ready do process is the resources to make ready, okay? Because if it's a an emergency fix under high time pressure, you sure as hang are not going to sit quietly and think about, now what do I need to do to make ready? You're going to rush out with the first fire truck you can find, or you're going to rush out with the first bucket of water you can find. You're going to rush out with the first roll of duct tape you can find. You're not going to say, oh, gee whiz, shouldn't I bring the right fire truck to the fire? All right? Right. Not bring the right parts instead of a roll of duct tape. Okay. And so, really, three things. First one is a good system for intelligence of the work that needs to be done so that you can actually plan and schedule the work tasks itself, themselves. The next thing is the attitude which says, make ready is important. We're not just going to grab the first bucket and go there and throw whatever it is on the fire. And then the third thing, of course, is the resources that enable you to do that. Because in many cases, folk have understand the importance of make ready, but it's just too much of an emergency, too much of a fire mm -hmm. drop, all right? It's the same as a sort of prevention is better than cure thing, right? Planning work is a prerequisite to doing work. Now, it wasn't exactly the same context, but I remember you saying something, an Afrikaans saying that fit here. Am I, am I misremembering? Well, a little bit, but the, the Afrikaans saying was the coolest Derek Carrick. In other words, somebody's already um, fired the round or fired their shotgun through the church's roof. The, the machine is broken. There's nothing you can do about it. You've just got to go fix it. You can't still talk and, 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 and reduce this uh, this this event to zero, all right, by, uh, by by maintaining the keeping the initiative, but you've now got this emergency red event, all right. Well, yeah, by it. the time by the, t the 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 saying then was was more by the time there's a red event, you can't make you can't make things ready. No, you probably can't. You probably probably, probably can't. Yeah, yeah. And you certainly can't avoid the collateral damage that's happened at the job site. And there are very few red events that cost less than the collateral damage that they caused in production. Right. Right. So let's go back all the way to the beginning then when we first started talking this afternoon. 
why track reliability? Why care about reliability in the first place? Number one reason for me to do to track reliability is that it's the lead indicator of operating cost, all right? Because every down event is a cost event. Same, you know, the safety guys did it. They said, we can't really track the cost of safety, but we can track the frequency of recordable events on the job site. And if we can reduce accident frequency rates to the absolute minimum, we can reduce the cost and the impacts of those events to the absolute minimum. So job number one, it's a lead indicator of operating costs, or reason number one. Reason number two is, it's what measures the effectiveness of your maintenance enterprise. We spend millions of dollars every year on our maintenance enterprise. We need to measure the effectiveness of that spending, the effectiveness of the maintenance enterprise. And we do that not because we want to repair machines. That's the efficiency of our repair enterprise. The effectiveness of our maintenance enterprise reduces red events to zero, increases reliability. Mm-hmm. Third one is, surprisingly, if you stay reasonable and don't get wound around the axle with complicated theoretical things, it's very easy to measure and very easy to record, all right? Because you just flag the red, the work order as a red event, say the machine caused this work order, the machine took this, this uh, Sharpie in its hand and wrote out the work order. I didn't write out the work order. The machine took the Sharpie and wrote out a work order that said, come fix me as quickly as possible, a red work order. The data is easy to record. It's easy to record and measure. No controversy. It's an integer event. The third one where where I really like about reliability and red events is everyone can see it and everybody can understand it. There's no if, buts, or maybes about what the hang has happened. All right? And uh, keep it simple. Call it a red event, call it an on-shift down event, whatever you want to do. Everybody knows, everybody understands, everybody knows that this is why we have a maintenance enterprise. And those are really the four reasons why I think reliability is so critically uh, critically important. Mm-hmm. Well, good. I think that that's a good wrap there. And, and uh, for all you guys listening, especially – if you're struggling to follow that conversation about the quadrants and when we're talking about the effect the the how to track the cost and how to look at reliability on a graph that go look at the book the book is very effective at describing that i feel and for those of you who already have the book that you can just uh, it, it, you can see very clearly on that graph where things are but I think otherwise, that's a wrap. We have just a few more chapters to go here. I'm looking forward to getting back together with you, Mike, and going through those and uh, starting starting to talk about the new things that are coming down the pike. I know that there's a lot of uh, people out there that are really getting turned on to equipment economics and thinking things through. And you know, every time it feels like that I go and I talk about this, whether it's in one of our boot camps or whether it's an on-site, that I get challenged and I hear things like, well, what you're missing is, 
And that's when my ears perk up. I know there's a lot of stuff that's coming coming up, especially with some of the advances in technology that are really coming to uh, fruition now, like with telematics, for example, reliable telematics. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of things to, to continue on. But I think that's good for today. And uh, thank you for taking the time. Michael, always a pleasure to be with you and always a pleasure to be with our listeners and and share thoughts with you and share thoughts with them. And as you say, there's a lot of stuff on the go. And I, I look forward to our conversations about uh, part six uh, of the book, which is chapter 16, which says, hey, look, let's be proactive. Let's not just be slaves to the cost reports. That's and right. Let's manage these lead indicators that we've been working on. Okay. Well, thank you, sir. And we will talk soon. Let's do that. That's it for today, folks. See you next time.